from there, we are jumping right into our, our sermon through the book of Mark. Uh, we're learning to follow king. We're learning to follow the king. And uh, in every kingdom, there are enemies and there are allies. There are, there are those that we wage war with, and there are those that we, um, we find fellowship and we fight together with. And we live in a very polarized culture that is looking for enemies and looking for alliances. And today, Jesus is helping his disciples kind of make that distinction. Who is he going to, uh, to push his disciples towards? Who should they back away from? And I think it's a, it's a surprising picture that uh, will kind of challenge us on both sides. And so we're going to see three, three things here. He's going to call us to include the sympathizer, to wholeheartedly include the sympathizer, to reject those who cause sin, and finally to be seasoned with salt. So we're going to see kind of these, one, one to accept, one to reject, and then this concept of like, how can we be salt, and what is that picture? How does it help us to discern the difference between friend and enemy, to live as followers of Christ? So with that, let's read Mark 9, verses 38 through 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in her name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we, we sit under the dichotomy of Christ here, the, the radical acceptance and yet the, the great call to destroy sin. And Father, we, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would encourage us even through hard words that you would show us our true enemies and Father, you would help us to be a, a people who gathers into the kingdom of God and, and does the things that you will. Father, would you make us salt? And would you teach us what that means? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we start with looking at, of all things, another misstep of the disciples. It seems like Jesus kind of picked these guys, because they're constantly messing up, and then he gets to teach them. So, uh, and we get to kind of uh, listen in on the teachings 
Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. All right, so there is someone who is, he's not an apostle, he's not a disciple, he's not one of the twelve, and yet is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And this is a great problem for John because they are not following us. Now notice the, the nuance here. It's not that they're not, not following Jesus. No, it's not. They're not part of us. They're not in our group. They're not in our clique. They're not in our posse. And we kind of see this, this tendency throughout the New Testament that there's kind of cliquishness among disciples. And they, we see the same thing in John the Baptist when they say, you know, John, all, all, the, all the people are going to that Jesus guy and getting baptized what do we do about it? There's this insecurity, and they, they long to, you know, to create sex and to create divisions and to create groups that are clear. And Jesus points it out as a great immaturity in his disciples, and we have to recognize that, all right, we have this tendency. We like to create our groups. We like to create our distinctions. They are clean, and they are easy, and they are safe. We like to create theological distinctions. And we like to say, you know, I, I'm going to associate with those who agree with my rather specific, when it comes down to it, theological positions. Or who have taken certain stances on, on kind of fringe issues, and I'll, I'll stick with those people. Or maybe we have this kind of association with the, the non-Christian, and we just kind of want to be totally separate from them. And we say, you know what, they, they are totally depraved, and we're going we're to leave them where they are. We will minister to them, but we don't want to be alongside them. Or maybe we think of, we, we, we look at the actions of other people, and we're quick to be skeptical and judgmental and think the worst, and to, to isolate ourselves from other churches, from other groups, from non-believers especially. All right, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say to, to us and to them? Do not stop him. Do not get in his way. Don't, don't attack this guy. Don't keep him from doing his work. And he has three reasons. He has three reasons, each starting with a four. He's, he's talking, okay, why? Why should we not isolate ourselves from these people? For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. All right. Now they've gotten wrapped up in this idea that like he's, he's, not, he's not part of us when maybe he's not part of them, but he's part of Jesus. Look what he's saying. He's saying that he's doing all of this in the name of Jesus and casting out demons. And what that means is uh, to do something in the name of, it's to to do it for the glory of, to do it in dependence upon the power of Jesus, to, to use the authority of Jesus, to go through Christ. We talk about this in, when we pray. If you notice, most of us end our prayers in, we talk about in the name of Jesus we pray, because we recognize that we have no authority in ourselves to go to God. And we have no righteousness with which to approach the, the throne room of heaven and we have no right to be heard unless we go through the Son who, who is worthy. 
It's that very same concept here. It feels more foreign because it's casting out demons, of course. Uh, but it's the same concept. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying that, you know what? People who are seeing great miracles and great acts of power, who see people restored and just see great things done in the name of Jesus, they're not going to be quick to forget it. They're not going to be quick to forget it. That the next time someone curses the name of Christ, they, w- they won't be as willing to hear it. And the next time someone voices their, their doubts or their unbelief and their, or their skepticism about Christians, they'll have this, this thought in the back of their head, but, but I saw it, and I, I saw the power, I saw the beauty of things done in the name of Christ. There's this great apologetic power in it, and so that's where we invite people we invite people to experience the, the blessings of Jesus Christ that are in spite of their understanding and are beyond them. But I think of teaching people to how to ask for forgiveness and to grant grace for one another, how to fight well in the name of Jesus. And there's great beauty in that. And they're blessed by this thing that is, is otherworldly. It's founded upon the cross, but they don't realize it. Or maybe we invite people to to be blessed in the name of Jesus, to be loved and cared for and supported. Or maybe we go out alongside these people and invite them to, in the name of Jesus, serve the poor and minister to the needy and love those who are hurting. All right, is that that a compromise? Is it a compromise and, and we're inviting these people who, who have bad hearts and who can't do it. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know what? No, they will see Christ. They will see the name of Jesus proclaimed and they will have a hard time not glorifying his name in the future. Are we willing to be that kind of church that can, can give people the, the common grace blessings of the kingdom of God and invite people to come alongside us to experience the new kingdom that Christ is building. A second reason. For the one who is not against us is for us. All right, the disciples, they're, they're forgetting. They're like, what, what was this guy doing? He was casting out demons. And it's not that he was just trying to do it. It seems like he's, he's actually casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And here they are. You know what? We should stop him. All right. In general... I think we're, we're pro-casting out demons. <laughs> the church is pro-casting out demons. Jesus, and the, the, they try to do it, and they're not always successful. Like, it's, this is a great work. And that's where it takes this kind of arrogance and comparison that they would have to put down these guys for, for doing which is what is clearly uh, commanded and true of the kingdom of God, that evil would be defeated, that Satan would be barred, that the the gates of hell would not prevail against the coming of the kingdom of Jesus. And that's where we have to say, okay, are we just here to create dividing lines? 
and to make sure we know who is in and who is out. All right, that's an important distinction. We made that distinction here, someone who is in versus out. All right, but there are larger goals here. And that we as the church, we, we have missions to accomplish. We have a kingdom to build. And we can recognize when things are, are holding true to that kingdom vision. That the destruction of evil, the ministering to the poor, the restoration of the broken, the proclamation of the truth, where mercy and goodness and grace reign, that we can actually support those things because they are characteristics of the kingdom. And this is, this is hard for me to say because I I'm, I'm, I'm want to be the first to say, yeah, but, but it's, it's, it's from a wrong heart or they're not truly worshiping well. And, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, you know what, this is, this is common grace good and we can rejoice in it and we can come alongside it. And we can even support it and be a part of it and without needing to, to belittle it and to, to kick them down a notch. Oftentimes, we, our reaction is that we feel guilty. And we're comparing ourselves to the world and we're saying, you know, I, I know we're supposed to be doing it, but they're doing it. All right, let's rejoice that anyone's doing it. <laughs> and that the kingdom of Jesus is being expressed in spite of, of all of ourselves and our sinful hearts and our own impure motives, which are expressed every second of every day. Finally, the third reason, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. All right, so not only is the sympathizer of Christ and his kingdom not rejected, all right, Jesus says specifically that the, t- the tiniest act that is done to, to bless a believer in the name of Jesus will be rewarded. And any non-believer who treats you any iota of positive because of your standing in Christ, that that will be rewarded. And that is to be applauded and to be, we have to be aghast that that would actually happen in a world that is as broken as it is. That's to be our reaction. That's to be how we relate to those who sympathize with the, the causes of Christ. I think too often we are, we are eager to make enemies. And eager to make distinctions and eager to to pull back when there are things where Jesus is surprisingly gracious and surprisingly inclusive. I know that sounds scary, but we have to trust Jesus. He says that it's okay, and he says that it's good, and we need to follow him. All right. But then... We have this great supportive Jesus who seems to have arms open wide and then we have this undeniable switch to who who then are the enemies, who is to be rejected. Verse 42. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. All right, this is an enemy of the kingdom, the one who would tempt, the one who would cause to sin, the little ones. The immature, the ignorant, the weak, the followers of Christ who don't know any better, who cannot defend themselves. And like, all right, in, in the creativity of the God-man Jesus, this is, this is the picture that he gives, is to, to rack a, a big block of granite around their neck and throw them into the sea that they would be pinned down to the ocean floor. That that would be the proper response, that that would be better than what they're going to get. All right, that's where we, we have this this shocking dichotomy. And we could readily be accused of like, who is this Jesus? Is he this nice guy who's, who's, who's hugging babies and, and ha, you know, has the lamb over his shoulders and he's always like smiling and his hair's blowing like Beyonce? Like, is that Jesus or is not? And then, and I think some of us were like, that's Jesus. And then we have this picture who is the Jesus with like with fire in his eyes and talking brimstone. And we say, wait, how, how, how do we have both of these Jesuses? All right, we need to understand why that makes sense. Yes, Jesus has great love for his kingdom and for his people. And when those little ones that he loves are threatened, we should not be surprised that he, he reacts with all wrath and anger and power. That that is love. That love doesn't just hang out in this quadrant and say, you know what, yeah, yeah you, can, you can hurt the person I love. No, it, it from an instant goes back to, to anger and wrath and defense and the destruction of those who would try to destroy the ones that he loves. That is not surprising. That's, that's entirely consistent with the character of love that we see in Christ. And we need to be that diverse in our in our passions and in our loves. I know some of you are live in these different quadrants more than others. All right, we need to be able to do both. Because, because we have great love for, for Christ. And what is he saying here? He's essentially like, these people, they are, they are poisoning the ones that he loves. They are breeding death in the ones that he loves. He's, they're threatening their very eternal life. And Jesus, of course, is going to come back with, with fiery destruction. And we may think, okay, good, good. Get the tempters, get the false teachers, get the discouragers, get the deceivers, get the liars. All right, we have to be honest with ourselves and recognize that we are sometimes in these categories. We are sometimes in these categories. And we say things like, you know, you know, it's, yeah, it's sin, but we all do it. Or we have the, like, trying to be fun and, like, you know, just ha have some more. Like, try, do another. Drink, drink another one. It's fine. It'll be, it's, don't worry about it. All right. We've all done that. 
Or we have the, you know, like you, you hear the, the whiff of, of gossip and like, tell me, tell me, go on. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, here, c- come over here. Let's, let's whisper. All right, we have that. Or we have the, the child who's being rebellious and we, we chuckle and we egg them on. And all right, that, that's our heart. This is not just a, a, a word for, for them out there. It's a word for us in here. And that's where Jesus takes it. He takes it to remind us that the enemy is, is not them. The enemy holistically is sin. That that is the great enemy. That is the one that we war against. We don't war against those who, who are in a different tribe but running the same direction. No, those who we sin at its core. That is our great enemy. And yes, we live under grace and we will never have to work for our salvation. But that freedom from working does not mean freedom to sin. It does not mean a trampling of grace. It doesn't mean that we then suck back the poison that Christ died to, to, to free us from. And so, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He is setting his sights on the true enemy, which is sin and those that cause sin. All right. I've heard people talking about this and they're like, well, that's a little naive of Jesus. I mean, so someone steals and you cut off their hand. They're probably, that's probably not going to do anything. The sin's in their heart. All right. Jesus knows that. Jesus taught us that. He's the one who taught us that adultery versus lust and that yeah, theft starts in the heart with coveting. Like, he knows this. All right, so his point is not that this is the most effective way of eliminating sin. All right, so do I have to say don't cut off your hands? I don't know. <laughs> if you cut off your hands, you are serious. Okay. Um, all right, so why does he say it? All right, he says it because when we hear this call to eliminate sin, we are, we are rife with excuses. And we say, you know, it's, it's not that bad. And, you know, it, it's, yeah, sin, sin isn't that big of a problem. All right, he's taking it seriously here. This is dead serious. And if you said, you know, like, yeah, like, I, I sin, but it's, it's not that big of a deal, he'd say, you know what? No, there, there are no excuses. And there's nothing more pressing in your life. And yet we say things like, yeah, maybe, maybe my phone causes me to sin, but, you know, I, I need it for email, and it's, it's really helpful for work, and, like, you know, everyone has one, you can't survive. What would Jesus say? He would say, like, okay, you can take your phone to hell, or you can throw it into the flames. 
That's the, that's the logic here. Or we say, you know, I have this friend, and like, yeah, they're really discouraging towards my relationship with Christ, and it's, they're always telling me to do horrible things, but, you know, I love them, and, you know, we've been friends forever, and you couldn't hurt, like, how, yeah, so like, okay, you and your friend can, can skip into hell together, or, or you can seek life. All right, that's the point here. It's not about the best technique for, for dealing with sin is cutting off limbs. But it's saying that, you know what, cut something off. Do what you need to do. This is life and death. There are real enemies out to, to rob you of your eternal life and to, to destroy your soul. And we get all distracted, like those people out there. No, like there's sin in your own heart that needs to be destroyed. All right, do we see the, the power of that? Are we ready to take sin that seriously? Are we ready to, to acknowledge it like, okay, Jesus died for it. It really is this horrible thing that I don't want poisoning my life and infecting my relationships and destroying my witness. That's what we're talking about. And so we have this Jesus who is shockingly accepting and utterly devastating at the same time. And he concludes with this, with this what can feel like a kind of obscure picture here. He it concludes with talking about salt. We're talking about salt, that this is, this is who we are to become. And he starts by saying, verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. All right, this is an insanely difficult verse to interpret. Um, and as many interpretations as you can imagine is a commentary that says that. So, um, but what do I think is it, this is really trying to say? All right, so there's a four here. He's saying that, like, okay, there's this reality of hell. And underneath that, everyone is going to be salted with fire. Right, I think what he's trying to say here is that the fire of destruction is, is ever before us. This is not just a metaphor. This is not just this kind of like, oh, yeah, it's... No, that in response to sin... People will be salted with fire. Now, salt is this uh, picture of holiness and purity and cleansing. And he's saying, you know what? The people, the people who are not purified now, they will be purified in the end by fire. They will be salted with fire that stands before all of us. It's not a picture first, uh, I don't think, of uh, temporary suffering in this life. I think it's, it's saying, you know, what stands before us is fire. And yet you, you be salted with salt. Like you can either be salted with salt or salted with fire. And that we as believers... We have the opportunity to be salted with, with salt.
which is totally meaningless, I know. All right. What does that mean? Um, all right, like the Old Testament starts to kind of crackle with all of these metaphors when we talk about us being salt. Uh, first of all, there's that picture of, of holiness and purity and, and, and being cleansed. And so, yes, salt has this picture of, of and it's a, a symbol of our sanctification, of our holiness, of our righteousness, of our changing our lives and being, being made whole. But it's also a picture of the covenant that God has made with his people. And so it's like, it's beautiful, it's the perfect metaphor. Um, Leviticus 2.13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. There's this picture that, like, why, why is salt part of the offerings here? It's a reminder of the covenant. It's a reminder that God has 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 ultimately cleansed. And that however sacrifices there are to be made, that the salt is there a reminder of the covenant that God has made graciously to his people to save them. Numbers 18, 19. All the holy contributions of the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. All right, so this salt, it starts to take this like dual meaning of, on the one hand, it's our own holiness, and on the other hand, it's God's faithfulness to create that holiness in us. And his faithfulness to sanctify us, his faithfulness to, to justify us, and cleanse us, and present us as blameless before himself. And so he then says, you know what? You can either, you can either be salted with fire or you, my people, can be salted with salt. And you can be the salt of the earth. You can be these ones who represent the covenant. And are a reminder to the world of the, the promises of being cleansed by Christ, by his blood. And you can represent the kingdom by being this purifying agent that that battles evil and overcomes destruction and brings restoration to a world that is decaying. Be salt. But he gives us these, these two warnings. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? All right, you chemistry majors out there. Um, you're like, that's impossible, that doesn't work. Uh, ancient Near Eastern salt is different. Uh, <laughs> really, really, it was. I had, to look, I had to research this, this is weird. Uh, all right, so like, they, they dragged up the, from like the Dead Sea, you'd get your salt. But the salt would, would slowly leach out until it was just gypsum, it was just like this white powder, and it didn't taste like anything. And he's saying that you're like, that's useless. It looks like salt, it's still the salt, but it's not salty. It lost all of its pres preserving power. And he's saying, you know what? If you're going to go out into the world, if you're going to, to be my people and represent the covenant, right, you have to be salty. 
You have to be characterized by, by this holiness, by this being different from the world. Or else you cannot preserve it, you cannot cleanse it, you cannot bring anything more to the table. And that's where we're, we're reminded that we long to be a different people and a different community so we can go out there and, and show the world Christ. And when we say, hey, in, in Jesus' name, let's do this, it actually is different. It's not just inviting people to the same thing that they've always seen, to self-righteousness or pride or guilty attempts to justify ourselves. But no, it's, it's empowered by the work of Jesus. It represents the covenant. We take care to eliminate sin so that we can be salt. And then he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right. That's where there's, how does salt preserve things? You have, to, you have to combine the two. You take dead, rotting pieces of flesh and you rub salt all over them. And you soak them in salt and you, you preserve them. And that's where it's not enough that we get to be a barrel of salt watching the world decay. <laughs> we as the salt, we have to go. And we rub alongside people who are not salty. And the hope is that they would, they would experience Christ and see his love and experience the gospel of Jesus and see that, that we are salted from the within by the, the sacrifice of Jesus and by his grace. That's why it's so important that we don't make enemies of the world, that those who are curious, that those who are willing to work alongside us, that they would, they would do so. That they might be salted. One last, one last point here. There was a, a decision between being salted with fire and salted with salt. Jesus, our Savior, he was salted with fire. That it was not enough that we should just be pardoned. No, there had to be a judgment. And that's where I remind you that Jesus Christ he didn't just sidle up to people who were nice. We weren't nice. We were enemies of Christ who hated him. And he came to be our sacrifice. He came to die for us. He came to take our judgment. And he came to, to remove us from the fire and to give us this salt. Let us be that which Jesus declares us by grace. Will we be salty? Let's do so for the name of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you, you prove yourself to be Lord and to be God. That you know us and you know our hearts and you know what we need to hear. Father, would you forgive us for being a divisive people who are about our own self-protection and not about your kingdom and doing the things that you've called us to do. 
Father, from not being willing to associate with the world. And Father, we, we confess that we are sinners. And that not only do we sin, but we justify reasons not to run from sin and to, to keep it in our lives and to, to cherish it in our hearts. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us. Would you give us greater courage and greater boldness to cut these things from our life that we may glorify your name more. We may reflect your gospel and live in freedom that we may be salty, preserving, life-giving, kingdom-manifesting people. Father, would you work in us? Would you empower us by the Holy Spirit? Would you keep the cross before us, we pray. In Christ's name.